That was a, that was a good, sweet time of worship. It's a good Friday. Surely, like, it, these are sweet times we come. We don't always get these where we, we kind of meet throughout the week. Um, so I love these. I love this time. I love uh, Christmas Eve, kind of the unusual times that we come together, not just on a Sunday. We get to spend time. And, and this is a good Friday. It's one of the most important days that we celebrate as Christians. Um, and, and what I want to just do for a few moments is why is it good, though? I mean, you ever just think about that? And sometimes, you know, our kids ask really good questions, and, and we need to be able to answer, Mom, Dad, why? Why do we call the death of our Creator good? Like, why is that good? I mean, as, as, we, as we read tonight, and man, the men did a great job just reading through the Gospel of Mark. We see that Jesus was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was arrested, convicted, mocked, beaten, crucified and killed. So how is that good? I mean, it almost seems just silly and crazy to call this day good. And, and there's many ways we could answer that. One is we, we know what happens on Sunday, right? Like, praise God, we know what happens on Sunday. Because if there was no Sunday, then this would not be good. So we know that. Jesus rose from the grave with the keys of death and Hades in his hand like a mighty warrior rising from the battlefield victorious over his foes. It's a glorious picture we have on the resurrection and we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on that this Sunday so I pray you'll be here with us. But tonight, what I want to do is just zero in on the cross. Like what, what took place there at the cross that we would call it good? I want to ask, why did Jesus go to the cross? And you might find this to be true of you, but, but I find it to be true of many people. We often read the Bible with an over-exaggerated view of ourselves. And what I mean is, like when we read the story of Cain and Abel, I'm not Cain. When we read the story of Lamech in, in chapter 4 in Genesis, and he says, somebody hit me, so I killed him. And we're like, well, I'm not Lamech. Or we read about Noah and the flood, and we say, well, I'd probably be in the boat. <laughs> like, I mean, we, we have a really good, exaggerated view of ourselves, at least often. But the Bible teaches something totally different. The Bible says that we are absolutely and completely sinful. And this isn't a disease that we caught, like the flu. Rather, it's the nature that we're born with. And to be sinful means that we... Not only that we do not love God, but that we don't want to worship him, we reject him, and we rebel against him. We don't want to serve him. Uh, we have no desire for him at all. In fact, in fact, when we look back in the garden, we see that rather than serve God, we would rather be God. And that is very much the nature that we are born with. And so tonight we're going to be in the book of Titus. And if you've read Titus, Titus is in the place of Crete. And perhaps you've heard of the word Cretan? Husbands? Wait, don't call your wives Cretans. Children, you shouldn't call your parents or your teachers Cretans. Cretan was, was a detestable place. Nobody good came from Crete. And so this is actually what one of their own people said about them. Uh, this is from... Uh, 
This is from Titus chapter 1. Uh, one of the Cretans said, Everyone here is liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul calls them detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now remember, what do we, how do we often read the Bible? Good thing I'm not a Cretan. You are. We are. We're born Cretans. We're born sinful. We're born that we, that we don't please God. And what Romans 8 says, we don't want to please God. So we have to realize it's not like just I can't or I don't, but I don't want to. And so what I want to do is read uh, read from Titus chapter 2, and I just want to see why is Good Friday good? And, and, and Jake already read this verse, or this passage, but we're going to read it again. And I am going to ask you to stand, because we like standing when we read Scripture. So go ahead and stand with me. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So let me just pray this evening. Lord, thank you that we can be here. And Lord, thank you that we know that this is Good Friday. The Friday that we celebrate on the eve of your resurrection is good because, Lord, you died on the cross. That you would redeem us, that you would purify us, and that we have everlasting life with you. And then you rise from the grave, victorious, proving you have conquered sin, death, and Satan. And that you truly are the Son of God. And that everyone who believes in you will have everlasting life to dwell with you in a new heavens and new earth, never to be separated again. God, there is great, great joy on Good Friday because of what you have done. And so, Father, may we know that, may we embrace that tonight. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, all I want to do is, is just look at three words tonight. Uh, so the first one is the word appeared. It appears several times in our text. And what we read is, in verse 11, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so we, we could just ask the question, what is God's response to our sinfulness? Think about it. Based upon Titus chapter 2, he sends grace. When, when creation mocks him, rejects him, rebels against him, what does God do? He gives grace. He sends grace. He sends his son Jesus as the very grace of God that he would come in the flesh. Now some people... And perhaps you have heard this. They'll say, well, there's no way I can believe in the God of the Bible because there's no way a loving father would send his son to the cross. That's cosmic child abuse. And there's many people that hold that view today and say, I cannot believe in the gospel because of that. 
those people greatly, greatly misunderstand the gospel and they prove their foolishness with their understanding. Because when we come, like look at verse 14. It says Jesus gave himself. The Father did not force the Son to earth. Rather, Jesus willingly came to bear the cross. In fact, Hebrews 12, too, one of my favorite passages. It was one of my mom's favorite passages. And it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So why did Jesus come? For joy. There's joy before him, joy in enduring the cross and what will be achieved in the cross. And so he comes. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together in perfect unity for the accomplishment of our salvation. There's no division. There's no animosity. There's no war within the Godhead. The Father ordains it. The Son achieves it. And the Spirit applies it to our life. Listen, the Son of God took on flesh and came to earth so he would die on the cross. That's always been the mission. That's always been the mission. That's why we can read in Ephesians chapter 1 that Christ, that we have been saved in Christ, in past eternity, that he has elected us and predestined us in his Son, always knowing and planning and ordaining that his Son would come to earth and die on the cross. And so notice what happens because of the salvation that, that comes about because of Jesus' death on the cross. People are transformed. If you look at verse 12, it says, once we were ungodly and we pursued worldly passions, but now what does the grace of God do? It trains us. It trains us to renounce those things and to live a self-controlled upright, godly lives. Verse 14 says, now we become zealous for good works, which means we're no longer Cretans. Praise God, right? If you're a Christian, you're not a Cretan. Might act like a Cretan sometime, but you're no longer a Cretan. You've literally been transformed by the grace of God that now you would be zealous to live for God. Now, have you ever been like the grocery store and you see a mom with some children and the children aren't happy and one of them decides to let everyone know in the entire store that they're not happy and so they, they start grabbing you know cereal boxes or whatever it is and they throw them they get on the ground and they start kicking and screaming and like you see it and you're definitely not going down the aisle like no one goes down the aisle and you want to keep walking, but you have to watch also. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? They will yell and they will scream until they get what they want because they're, they're Cretans. It's true. <laughs> but now imagine this. Like, just imagine this. All of a sudden, the child stands up and says, and sincerely says, Mother, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I love you very much. I want to serve you, and I want to help you with all of my heart, and I ask forgiveness for doing what I have just done. Now, in one sense, we say, well, that's impossible. No child ever does that. And that's why this is actually a good picture of what happens when the gospel comes upon us, because the gospel transforms us. 
That we go from Cretan, that we go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And that now we go from pursuing worldly passions and sinful desires, that now we run after God, we live self-controlled, upright, godly lives, zealous for good works. But how? How does that happen? What is it that Jesus does at the cross that transforms us? And so this brings us to word number two, Jesus redeems us. In verse 14, Paul says, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now the word redeem means to to set free, to purchase, to liberate. If you remember, we're born sinful. The condition of all humanity is that we do not love God. Romans 6, 17 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed Before we come to know Christ, we are slaves to sin. And don't think that we're slaves in the sense of being forced into slavery. No, we we love sinning. And that's all that we want. In fact, G.K. Chesterton, he one time wrote in, in response to an article that someone had said, what is wrong with the world? So he wrote back to him, I am G.K. Chesterton. This is the truth. Every single one of us is born sinful. Not only not desiring God, but we don't want to please him. Um, in Galatians 5.1, though, we read this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The death of Christ sets us free from sin. This is why Paul will say in Galatians 5.11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think I gave Raymond the wrong passage up there. But it's Romans 5.11. The cost of your freedom. The cost to no longer be a slave to sin, but to be alive in Christ, is the death of Jesus Christ. In order for us to be redeemed, in order for us to be set free from sin, in order for us to have a new nature, Christ goes through, and there's no alternatives. There's no alternate routes. And if you live here in Lacey, and you know that when there's an accident on I-5, you're not going north and you're not coming south. Because there's no alternate routes. There's one way to go north. There's one way to go south. It's I-5. And when there's an accident, you're just sitting on the highway. No alternate routes. There's no other way to have redemption apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the solution. That is why the cost of our eternal life, the cost of becoming free from sin, of being set free, is the death of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to now word number three. Jesus purifies us. Again, in verse 14, we read, Jesus purifies for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, just because we're no longer slaves to sin does not mean that we're sinless Does that mean that we're perfect now at this moment? If you're a Christian, you know we still wrestle with sin. But we're no longer under the power of sin. But we still battle against it. We wrestle against it. 
We need the Spirit to strengthen us each and every day that we would overcome sin. We need Christians, one another, to, or to come alongside one another, to encourage us, to spur us on, to remind us of the truths of the gospel. Because there is many times that we fall back into sin, and when we continue to stumble, perhaps you have thought this, and I'm sure you've heard someone say this. They go, you know, I, I think now I've messed up too many times. And I'm too dirty, and I know that no longer God could possibly want me. And yet, the truth is, is that at the cross, Jesus purifies us. He cleanses us. Isaiah 1.18 says, his blood makes us clean, white as snow. Um, we like to go to the beach. Uh, we were hoping to go to the beach this week, but there was no sun, so we didn't. Uh, and when we go to the beach, we, we get there, and I have this idea that my kids can go play and not get dirty. Every time. They, within five minutes, they're covered in sand and grime, and I'm like, oh, what has happened? And yet my wife is much smarter than me, and she brings a change of clothes for them every single time. And so once we get done playing at the beach, before we get all back in the vehicles and all drive home, we change clothes. And we're clean, and no longer do we have the dirt and the sand and the grime and all that kind of stuff on us. Because we have this change of clothes. We've exchanged our, our dirty, sandy, grimy clothes for new ones. And that's what happens at the cross in a much, much greater sense. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Now this verse is called the great exchange. So just, just look at what it says. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we, that's you and me, might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange? So Jesus takes our sin upon himself which he goes to the cross and pays the penalty for us because we cannot pay that penalty. And then in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. So there's an exchange. He takes our, our filthy, dirty rags of sin, our sinful nature, in exchange he gives us his righteousness so that now when the Father looks at you, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of his Son, which is why when you're saved by Jesus, when you believe in him, you're said to be adopted into his family, that you're now what? Children of God. Sons and daughters of God. And you're not like in a tiered Christianity where God looks at his son and goes, well, he's really righteous. And then he looks at us and he goes, well, are you kind of righteous? But we share the same righteousness because he gives it to us. He's done this exchange. So the very righteousness of Christ is our righteousness. So when the Father looks at you, know this. And when you wrestle with depression, when you wrestle with your sins, and you wrestle with, could God still love me? And you go, yes, he does. Not because of my works, not because of anything I've done, but because of grace. He appeared, he redeemed me, and he purified me. And he set me free that I can now live for him all by grace. All by grace. That's why we call Friday 
the night of Jesus' death, his crucifixion, good. Because it wasn't evil winning. It looked like it. It looked like evil won. But come Sunday, we know evil didn't win. We know that Jesus rises from the grave. We know that all he said is true. We know that he is the true savior of the world. And, and he appeared, he redeemed, and he purified. And the cross now is so great that Paul says in Galatians 6.14, now just, just think this through. He says, but be it far, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. And I to, now just, just think about the, the lunacy of that passage if Jesus didn't accomplish all that we see here today and so much more. Paul boasts, and that which stood in the world's eyes as the instrument of torture. It was foolish before the world. That's what 1 Corinthians says. The, the cross is folly to the world, but to us it is the power of God. And so we boast in it, which means we love it and we live for it and we declare it and we'll never be silent about it because that which brought death to Christ brought us everlasting life. And we know that because on Easter he rises from the grave victorious over sin, death, and Satan. So we boast in it. And I encourage you, to share the gospel with your friends. Do not be intimidated. Do not think, well, they're going to think it's crazy. No, they're going to think it's crazy. And yet, it's the very power of God to save. Because what appears foolish to the world is wise to God. And we are saved by his grace. And so at Good Friday, we remember Jesus appeared, he redeemed and he purified us. So let us continue to celebrate Good Friday. I thank you for coming tonight. And I pray that you are reminded of the truth and the goodness of what this day stands for. Let me pray. Father, Father, may we never boast in anything but the cross. May we never boast in anything but the cross. And as we come here tonight... And we're just once again reminded you appeared and you redeemed and you purified us. God, may our hearts be made well. May we've been reminded of the greatest joy that has ever come into this world, the greatest news that your son paid a debt that we owed and we could never pay. And yet now, because he stood in our place, we've been redeemed. We've been purified. We've been made clean. And there is nothing Satan or this world can do to overcome that. We cannot be separated from the love of God. You promised us that in Romans 8. And so, Father, we praise you. We praise you and we praise you and we praise you. As we close tonight. And as we lift up our voices once more in song, may we truly do it from the depths of our heart, acknowledging that you are our Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who appeared, the one who redeemed, the one who purifies us, and the one who will appear, who will appear again. And we long for that day. 
but we will be with you for all of eternity, and we will see you as you are, because we will be made perfect like you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.